Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Good afternoon, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense Talk Radio. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie. And unfortunately today, Curtis is not with us. Uh, he's out doing an uh, award ceremony for someone that died in Vietnam and had a statue uh, being erected for him. So he's out there playing the bugle, playing taps, and whatever else he's doing. So he'll be back with us on Tuesday. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie. And you can find us at our webpage, which is the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. We've got ourselves an exciting show out there today, and I'm welcoming everyone that's showing up in the chat room, in our studio, up on Facebook and YouTube, on Gab, One Way, MeWe, and everywhere else. Like I said, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And here we go. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith based and patriotic. Earth water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? <laughs> Who doesn't? So if so, Check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom! You just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my webpage. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. They offer four tiers for affiliates, from one case to 16 cases. I bought four cases to start, and boy, am I hooked on the water. Simply go to my webpage 
click on the Earth Water link on the page and join Team Earth Water. Go to Southern Sense and become a member of my site. And you'll also be entered to win the latest book offer if you become a member of my site. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Check it out. I know you'll be pleased. All right. We've got ourselves an exciting show here. We've got some great guests. We're going to be starting off with Ali Akbar, Alexander. Uh, he's a great guy. He's out of a tech-owned um, podcast. He also shows up on Alex Jones a lot as a guest on his show. He's got some really fantastic videos. We're going to be talking to him about certain issues of the day and what is going on in the world of politics. Even though he says he's not really into politics anymore, more into philosophy, with him you can't divide the two. Uh, Then we're we're going to actually have three different guests today. Uh, The second guest is going to be Peter Murphy. He's the Vice President of Policy for invest in education. It's a group out of New York, a nonprofit that works for school choice. So we're going to be talking to him about certain projects he has. And our final guest on the show would be a friend of mine. He's the chair of the South Carolina GOP. He is a dynamic conservative. He is something we here in South Carolina needed to reinvigorate the party and get conservatives more active. I'm going to be talking to Drew, and hopefully he'll be here not just today, but also next Friday, because next 26th, the 26th, um, we have our runoff. We had several close races in the primary this past Tuesday, so it forced it into a runoff. So we're going to be talking to him about that and the direction he's going to be taking the party Uh, So we've got a lot to talk about. That said, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going out to police officer Justice, I'm sorry, Justin Taylor Billa of the Mobile Police Department in Alabama. His end of watch was Tuesday, February 20th of this year. And this is from the Officer Down Memorial page. Police Officer Justin Billa was shot and killed while assisting in the apprehension of a man who had just murdered his ex-wife. Investigators at the scene of the original murder identified the subject as a person of interest. Officer Billa, along with other officers, went to the man's home on Avondale Court to make contact with him. As the officers arrived on scene, The subject exited the home and opened fire on them, striking Officer Billa. Another officer returned fire as the subject retreated back into the home. Officer Billa was transported to the University of South Alabama Medical Center, where he died a short time later. The subject remained barricaded inside his home for the next three hours. His body was recovered from the home following the standoff. Officer Billa served with the Mobile Police Department for two years. He is survived by his wife and one-year-old son. This is also from AL.com. In the shadows of the 60-year-old live oak tree under a clear blue sky, the United States flag that was draped over the casket of slain Mobile Police Officer Justin Billa was folded 13 times and handed over to his tearful and grieving widow. The Mobile Police Officer, only 27, was buried Tuesday, February 27th, amid hundreds of well-wishers, first responders, and military personnel. The burial, which took place at Mobile Memorial Gardens 
came after an emotional funeral service at Cottage Hill Baptist Church in the morning, followed by a seven-mile procession of hundreds of vehicles from across the country. Officers from Boston, Chicago, and New York were in attendance. Dozens of U.S. flags lined the route at the burial site, while a Mobile Police Department bugler performed the last post as hundreds of police officers stood at attention. Seven law enforcement officers, head-to-toe in their finest dress, aimed their rifles in the air and fired three times. For several minutes after the bugler finished playing, complete silence befell the burial party, with the only sound being the apt noise of police sirens in the distance. Three doves were released in Bill's memory. Bill's, Bill's funeral took place one week after he was fatally shot by a suspect he was investigating at an address in Pritchard, northwest of Mobile. Mobile Police Department had discovered the body of Fonda Police in a street around 9.30 p.m. on February 19th. After initial investigations, Billa was dispatched to the address of Polite's ex-husband, Robert Holly, whom she had been with that day. While setting up a police cordon outside of Holly's home, Billa was shot by Holly. He was rushed to a hospital where he was announced dead. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people lined the streets as Billa's body made the journey from the church to the cemetery. Among the crowds was the wife of killed police officer from Pritchard, Daniel James Clark Sr., who was killed in a car chase with a suspect in 2002. I was heartbroken, said Crystal Clark, when she heard about Bill's death. It reminded me of when David passed. I know what his wife is going through right now. Preparations for Bill's interment began early on that Monday morning as staff at the funeral home began digging his grave in a specially selected area within the cemetery's Heroes Garden, which is an area reserved for first responders. Greg Grave Diggers outlined the grave with small blue flags before using shovels to take out the first dirt. A reverse hoe, a mechanical digger, is then used to finish the job. Each grave is 54 inches, according to Brian Shake, president and CEO of Mobile Memorial Gardens who buried three Dallas police officers in the aftermath of the shootings in 2016. First responders are an emotional time for everyone in our industry, said Sheik, but more so since three of our officers were Billings' relatives working here. Members of the public were encouraged to attend a visitation on Monday evening and Tuesday morning. Officer's funeral began and his casket was closed for the last time at the church. A number of city officials spoke, including Mobile Mayor Sandy Stimson. Today, as we lay Justin to rest, we know that much he was. Much more than that, Justin made a difference in every one of our lives, and he will continue to make a difference. And to each of you officers, you are making a difference every day. And for you and your service, thank you. As Billings' body made its final journey, Patriot Guard riders were waiting to welcome his body through the gates of the cemetery. The riders, made up of bikers from around the country that attend the funerals of first responders and military personnel at the invitation of the deceased's family. Each member stood with the U.S. flag in hand 
as the procession passed through the gates on its way to Hero's Garden. It is a sad day for all of Mobile and the United States, said Lloyd Pursley, one of the leaders of the group. We as Patriot Guard riders and riders from a number of other organizations are here today to honor him, Billa, with a silent flag line as the procession enters the cemetery. Thank goodness we have such a beautiful day to show that kind of respect. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Billa. It is also dedicated to all of the brave men and women who serve as first responders out there. From the birth, be they law enforcement officers, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military. From the birth of this nation through today and into the future. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one of them. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Block Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. Also streaming live simultaneously on Facebook and YouTube. And Curtis is not with us today, but pinch hitting in on the phone, I have with me my former co-host, the one and only Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? I am wonderful, Annie. Always good to come and do some relief pitching. I don't know that I'll ever fill Curtis's shoes, but thanks for uh, letting me fill in. 
<laughs> All right, I see someone in the uh, in the uh, studio line, and because Curtis is not with me, if you are my next guest, please press one on your keypad so I know to bring you on the line. Otherwise, I will assume that you are listening. And the digit has been pressed. And here we go, 202. I'm assuming this is Ali, is it? Yes, Annie, how are you? Hi, how are you doing today? We have with us Ali Alexander. And unfortunately, Curtis is not with us, so I just didn't know what number you were calling in from, so I had to guess. <laughs> Welcome to our show. Oh, man, I was watching some of your videos, uh, especially some of the uh, shows that you do with um, Alex Jones, and uh, oh, yeah. I, I was cracking up. Man, I, I fell in love with you. If, if I were not so much <laughs> older than you, I'd be traveling to Texas. <laughs> I get that a lot, actually. I'm a, I'm a, uh, you know, uh, Lucian Winters says uh, the boomers love you, and uh, you know I love them back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> oh man, um, I have a whole list of stuff to, to talk to you about, but I don't even know where to begin. It's like the crazies are coming out of the woodwork ever since Trump has been elected. I, in my entire life, have never seen an election cycle as nuts as this. Now you got to remember, I grew up while the Vietnam War was going on. Yeah, I was graduating while Nixon was being impeached. Uh, I went and owned my first business while under Ronald Reagan, and he was the first person I voted for president. So uh, when I say I've never seen anything as nuts, I really mean I have never seen anything as nuts as, like this. The AG report just came out, and you've got the left foaming at the mouth. <laughs> What's going on, Really? Yeah, it, it, it really is interesting because I think there's this knee-jerk reaction inside of, uh, well, any, any high IQ industry, you know, media, academia, to say, well, this is similar to this, and this is history repeating itself. And I like to say, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes, but this is a very interesting time. I don't think that we have ever been in a, in a cold civil war such as this, and I, I think that this does exceed – uh, you know, the hippie protests, the anti-war protests, um, this this feels a lot like, uh, you know, pre-Civil War, but uh, it's, you know, uh, it's, you know, in, in a lot of ways it, it's worse because we're disagreeing over very petty things in which we can never, we can never, it's, it's hard to see how we ever come back uh, when uh, one side does not believe the other side should ever be able to elect anyone. Yeah, it's it's crazy because some of the things that are going out there, uh, there's this new movement out there. Well, it's not new. It's been going around for decades, but it's taken up such momentum after the election of Trump of the national popular vote. And they're very near close to having that happen with these compacts and resolutions that are going across the country. And if that were ever to happen, voices like yours and mine will forever be silenced. So how do we how do we keep our voice out there should this pass? You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, the argument that the people are making for the National Popular Vote Compact, you know, Fred Thompson championed that. And what he told Republicans is he was convinced um, uh, by the, you know, the studies that suggest that there are depressed Republican turnouts in New York and California. And we do know, I will say, we do know this to be true in California. So California is like a 60-40 state. And there are Republicans who just don't go to the polls because their votes won't matter. And so, you know, arguably it levels off, but it also encourages Democratic turnout in the South. So, you know, Fred Thompson was like, you know, this will actually, uh, you know, level everything out. Um, but I, 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 I'm not in favor of it. 
for principled reasons. You know, we are structurally set up uh, to be states, and the state signed on to the Constitution. That's where the legal binding contract is. If anyone ever does away with states' rights, then there is no Constitution. It's not a legally binding document anymore. Uh, it's, it's called a social contract. You know, any of the uh, – an, an agreement between the government and its people or the people and its and their government is called a social contract, and ours happens to be the United States Constitution, and the signers on that are the states. So if they ever did that, I would basically uh, consider us a rogue nation, not sovereign, and, and I would choose which laws I wanted to comply with and what, what I didn't. Uh, but I am very concerned about it. Um, you know, we're getting awfully close, but we can't forget, you know, Phyllis Shafley uh, defeated that, uh, that, uh, that, that amendment that went under the guise of equal treatment for women which wasn't that at all, uh, you know, decades and decades and de- decades ago. And, and that came down to a, a, like a one or two state difference. And so, you know, we came very close. So we've come close before, um, and this isn't that close. But, um, but uh, what we've got to continue to do is just make the case to the people that, you know, democratic policies don't work unless you want your city to, you know, smell like San Francisco and run like New York City. <laughs> You know, I, I was proud to have Phyllis Shapley on the show here uh, just before she passed away. And she was such a wonderful and gracious guest. You know, I, I, people who don't know you, I want you to introduce yourself. And Curtis introduced you to me through his email. And he called you Ali Akbar Alexander. So I don't know why he put that in there. Or is that something you've done? Because you've got a very unique yeah. background. Yeah, so I was born Ali Akbar, um, and uh, I'm transitioning. I'm trans Alexander. Um, uh, so my my mom's black, and my dad is Arab. He left when I was two, and uh, now that I'm in adulthood, and both of my brothers have have children, and uh, you know, some of us have different last names. It's like, okay, let's unite the family under one banner. And uh, Akbar means is the highest form of great, so greatest and Alexander was Alexander the Great. Uh, I figured uh, it was a great name um, that I could unite under uh, with my family. So, so it's kind of a transition. It's kind of weird to have been in politics and kind of a public figure, uh, not on purpose, but just by virtue of some of the stuff I say. It kind of whatever. Um, you know, I'm more of an operative. I've, I've been doing GOP politics and conservative movement politics for 11 years. Dropped out of college to do it, and um, it's just my commentary or or fights that I've been in has attracted media. And so it's, it's, it's kind of, I guess, unintuitive to change your name, but it's not for anybody else but me. And um, uh, so, so, you know, that's what I'm doing now. But what's interesting is I'm now in this phase of life where I've had a lot of fun for 11 years. Um, I've run a successful business. What I'm really passionate about and what I think any, what Trump showed us is anything is possible. What Kanye showed us is anything is possible. And uh, I want to be a philosopher. I remember that was the first job I ever told my mom I wanted. And it, it was not available. And now it's available again. Now you can be supported by the crowd <laughs> instead of noblemen and, and dukes uh, and, uh, and, and the state. And so you can be supported by the crowd. So I think I'll spend the next two years kind of transitioning. And, and that's why I went on InfoWars. That's why I've gone on Sputnik Radio, things I wouldn't have been able to do if I just wanted to continue being in a – an establishment hack or a GOP operative. I want to talk to anybody anywhere, and I don't care if they're a Satanist, a Democrat, a socialist, conservative, a Christian, a Jew. I want to talk to everyone. Who should be deprived of my truth and my philosophy is what I say. So, um, 
So I don't know. I'm having fun. I'm having a lot of fun now. Oh, man. Because I was looking at your website and some of the descriptions because people want to find you. I, I Because I'm limited in the number of characters I can put in the description, I put up your Facebook link, <laughs> which I thought was the best way to get a hold of you, which is The Ali Alexander. Uh, people listening to the podcast later or viewing the podcast later can just click on that link and go straight to your page. Uh, but one of the things you wrote in there is that you're united to fight America's Ogoliarchs. Uh And then you went and said... Uh, you were talking about moderate or non-racist alt-right. Now, I do take offense with the alt-right because the left produced that just to make conservatives and Republicans look as if they are racist. They created that term. So, now, why would you use that, honestly? Because alt-right well, is that's... the same as a fascist and a socialist. and That has nothing to do with the Republican or conservative movement. Well, I would uh, I would I would disagree with the name's origin. Uh, it it was very uh, uh, clearly created by uh, a gentleman who mentored Richard Spencer, and then Richard Spencer took the mantle. And this was, I think, two thousand eight or nine is when they first came up with the term alt right. And Richard Spencer took the mantle in two thousand and ten. Richard Spencer is a former uh, libertarian uh, turned uh, white nationalist, and um, you know I've had a lot of I've had a lot of um, uh, verbal and intellectual blows with the alt-right. So I'm, I'm intimately familiar with these people from Nathan Domingo to, um, to, uh, uh, to uh, Richard Kessler, the guy who organized the Charlottesville rally, to Richard Spencer, to a lot of these guys, James Alsep. So I've, I've spent a lot of time, um, you know, learning the enemy. What I will agree with you is they, they do have nothing to do with conservatism. Um, they hate conservatism. Uh, they like big government policies. They want an ethno state, uh, you know, for white people that produces a lot of welfare, big government. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it has been my contention that they're not actually on the right um, because they don't believe in individualism. They actually believe in collectivism. Uh, they don't believe in personal responsibility, and they have grievances that really have nothing to do with people of color and everything to do with decisions white people have made. White people made the decision – to give, uh, you know, if they don't want women to vote, well, that was white people. If they didn't want black people equal, well, that was white people. Uh, if they don't want immigration, well, that was white people. White people made all of the decisions that these white nationalists um, quibble with. But Hillary Clinton popularized the term um, for the mainstream public uh, in that speech in the fall of 2016. But the alt-right is very, very clearly a bunch of disaffected white people uh, from both the left and the right who favor big government policies. And, um, uh, uh, you know, and they are, they are my, they are my enemies. They, you know, I, I, I put it this way. I'm throwing a conference in September. Uh, people can attend it by going to AmericanPriority.com and in the footer, they can purchase the tickets in DC. We'll have a thousand or 2000 people there. And I was asked, you know, are you going to allow anybody on the alt right to speak, and I said, there's going to be a lot of controversial speakers, but I don't intend. This is an America First com- uh, conference, and what the alt right and the progressive ha- have in common is they see a different America that they want to make great. I want to make this America great, so we're America First, and they're uh, they're alt Americas first, and. Uh, that's what the progressives and the alt-right share in common, in my opinion. Well, I've got my former co-host who's pinch-hitting for me for Curtis today uh, in the studio, not the studio, well, he's, in the, he's on the phone with us, and he can tell you that 
when we come across someone from what they call the all right, and I still hate them using the word, it should be all left, to be honest, <laughs> if we really want to be honest about who they are. But we've had it several times where we even had some guy wrote this book about multiculturalism. And, oh, geez, did we tear them apart. So, Mike, feel free yeah. to jump in. Uh, I did have a question. Of course, Annie stole my first one. Annie, the last couple of shows now you've been uh, jumping ahead of me, uh, bruising my ego here a little bit. Um, <laughs> where, do you, where do you see cur- currently um, – Lean, I am a conservative, but I'm more a constitutional conservative, a real constitutional mm-hmm. conservative. Um, where do you see the status of – I see so many Republicans now equally as indoctrinated as these liberal Democrats into these political party ideologies. Mm-hmm. Whereas they're really I, – I, I'm always told don't – they're stupid. You know, stupid people collaborate with each other just like drug addicts. <laughs> they live a life never knowing they're stupid because they're stupid. Mm-hmm. But where do you see this going into the future? As we always hear, well, you know, th- this new generation, th- th- they're not as blind or they're not. No, they may not watch television news. But where do you see, say, 10 years from now? Um, and uh, before before you answer that, my next question is, what, what's your take thus far on uh, President Trump um, and, and his, uh, his uh, 500 days? Uh, I'll answer the second question first. I think that Trump's uh, uh, 500 days, uh, considering the context that he has faced unprecedented obstruction and uh, and uh, many of his associates are under this Russia hoax investigation, uh, has been truly, truly remarkable. And uh, hats off to the Democrats. I mean, can you imagine a car that's ready to go 100 miles per hour for the first time in modern times, and the Democrats have found a way to only get it to 60? And so, you know, we have uh, uh, black unemployment uh, at a record low. You have Hispanic unemployment at a record low. Black home ownership is the highest it's ever been uh, in recorded history. Um, the, the supposed pay gap between men and women uh, is decreasing. Um, you know, we have some really exciting stuff happening on, in biomed and biotech, and a lot of that is due to President Trump's uh, war with regulation and the FDA in particular. Um, you know, we're more energy independent than we've ever been. I mean, it's a very exciting time to be America because, uh, you know, we were, we're, we're entering a period where, um, you know, we have a hegemony. So that means that all decisions that affect the world have to involve us. It gives us ultimate leverage. But we were in a position where a lot of wealthy people are going to Singapore and China. And uh, there's this exodus that no one's talking about that's happening with America, and I tell people, if you want, if you want to know that what I'm telling you is true, consider that Mark Zuckerberg offered uh, President Xi of China um, to name his daughter, and uh, even um, uh, Donald Trump's granddaughter, uh, Jared and Ivanka Kushner's uh, daughter, knows Mandarin and can sing in Mandarin. So the elites know this, and my job is to tell the people that Singapore. Uh, is the next free capital of the world, uh, the capitalist capital of the world, and, and China is going to be the next, um, the next superpower. But Trump is trying to avert that. So, so, to, so that rolls into your second uh, question is, is Trump is either – I think that Trump is a speed bump. I think that America is doomed. Um, I think that in 50 years we're no longer, you know, what we are or, or um, 
or what we've ever come to want for ourselves. But and I think that's going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be it's going to be a slow bleed, and then it's rapid. Um, we won't be able to attract the brightest minds from around the world. That's going to be a problem. Our innovation will slow. We'll be able to measure that. The Heritage Foundation does a good job of measuring that. Um, and then people will start fighting us on the legal front. Um, there will be patent wars. Um, there will be uh, wars over, uh, you know, where international limits are in the sea. And those are things that we will not be able to any longer determine. We'll be able to debate, but we won't be able to uh, determine it. And United States equality uh, is a scary thought. You know, us equal amongst nations or us even equal amongst superpowers, I don't think that people realize what that will do to our unemployment rate, what that will do to, uh, to slow our GDP. You'll actually see people die. So um, I'm not too optimistic, but Trump is going to give us a fighting chance. Trump's policies are going to give us a fighting chance. And it's cool because it's not just conservatives. He's made conservatives swallow a bunch of pills that we normally wouldn't have. Um, you know, the protectionist policies are not in line with our conservative views. But, but here he is telling us, you know, there are some things that are more important than economics, like, you know, allowing the Midwest and the Rust Belt to keep their cultural identity. And I had never considered that before. So for me, Trump is sharpening some of my ideas and, uh, and, and allowing me to reprioritize them. Uh, I, I've never seen a GOP base disagree more with this president than this GOP base with Trump, contrary to what the never Trumpers want to say. So it's really bringing life to the system. But I don't know, in 10 years, we're either going to have four parties or the parties are going to be obliterated, um, I think. Um, and, but what is also important, some of, some of us live in a very, or I guess we all live in a post-Reagan era. Let's not forget, the political parties adopt ideological positions. They are not ideological institutions. So uh, the Republican Party is not supposed to be conservative, and the Democratic Party is not supposed to be liberal and not vice versa. They're supposed to adopt policies because they're vehicles. Um, uh, so they should be hybrid. So what, what I want to say is that what, what conservatives should be bragging about is there are more conservatives in Congress than at any point in our country's history, period. And um, there, are, there are more progressives uh, in Congress than at any point in this country's history. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of funny. You know, it's like you get fat. Uh, you know, they say... Uh, uh, you know, a soldier will get fat and, you know, he'll reminisce about, you know, the glory days. And what's funny is because of our lifespans, it's, it's almost like we want the Repu- – we, we're, we're talking about a heyday of the Republican Party that never has existed. And liberals are saying the same thing about the Democratic Party, but it's just ahistorical to suggest that, you know, that the parties are supposed to be like the Heritage Foundation or Freedom Works or – you know, any of these organizations, they're really not, and neither are our politicians. Our politicians have uh, a history in this country of having a bipartisan agreement to screw the people. And the disruption that we're seeing, the polarization that we're seeing, is that ideology is actually injecting itself into it. And it simultaneously may occur at at the twilight years of our country, but it won't be because of ideology. But a lot of people are going to point to the lack of ideology or too much ideology is what kills this country, but it won't be that at all. It'll be, you know, the economic swap and, and where, uh, where trillions of dollars will end up going. Anyway, that's where I, I uh, that's what I see. 
a follow-up to that, um, I may be going to the conference in September. I got an email on it. I guess it depends on my schedule. Also, what is your take on Americans for Prosperity um, as far as a group? Uh, you know, there's, um, obviously, Annie and I are very liberty-oriented. Um, what mm-hmm. is your take on them? Uh, I don't I don't like to make um, uh, comments about groups. And, I've, you know, uh, Tim Phillips, the president of AFP, AFP is – a good Christian man and a friend of mine. And, um, I, uh, I've spoken at AFP events, but I don't, I don't really like to, uh, uh, prognosticate, uh, uh, unless I'm really, really angry and then it's, it's spontaneous on Periscope. But, but what I will say is, you know, there, there are some differences, uh, of opinion between the Trump administration and the Koch brothers. And that's reflected, uh, in AFP and, um, and AFP has done a, a lot of good work. And we disagree on a lot of uh, core things like immigration right now, and, um, and you know, and the Virginia, pri- the recent Virginia primary. So it's, uh, you know, you never know where your friends are going to be in a couple of years. And what I'm finding out is that my friends and I happen to be migrating in different directions right now. Okay, great. It's, it's funny uh, was, had uh, our- in Canada. The election in Canada certainly was a 180. In Ontario, they they put in basically yeah. the. Uh, Donald Trump version. Um, he says he wants beer at a dollar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's exciting to see um, um, some of these countries consider more right wing policies, um, and I think that's more reflective of people who were discouraged from voting uh, previously. No, that's true. Because even here in South Carolina. Uh, Mark Stanford, who happens to be a friend of mine, uh, was unseated by Katie Arrington in the race going for Congress yeah. here. And uh, and I've worked with the Americans for Prosperity on several occasions through my Tea Party because uh, we were fighting a gas tax increase here within the state. And they did a tremendous amount of work on several different issues here within the state. You know, on the state levels, I, great. Um, I'm very strong on immigration, but I'm looking at some of the policies that Donald Trump is talking about, especially dealing with DACA, and I'm having a little bit of a problem with him because I tend to be more conservative and follow the law. The law is the mm-hmm. law. Um, and he got a, he got attacked in the press conference today that was on, and they said, well, why don't you do an executive order? Do you know, I, I stopped and I thought about that, and I posted something up on some of the social networks. And positing, why would they ask him to do that when the Democrats uh, passed the law, Obama enacted it, enforced it, and why would you ask Trump to violate the Constitution unless you intentionally want to force him to violate the Constitution so you can impeach him? If there's another <laughs> reason to find a way to impeach him. And I, I thought about this. So I said, how clever. How very clever. And I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past him uh, uh, at all. I want to mention Annie, I got some more calls uh, up a, in the studio. If you want to, oh. Annie, oh, sorry, Mike. The people in the studio, Mike, ahead, let, let the people know in the studio there if they want to join, just press one on the keypad if you have a question or a comment. Otherwise, I'm assuming that you're listening in the studio there. All right, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. Uh, was that the big upset? I, I, I saw that this lady beat uh, Sanford, and I saw that Donald Trump tweeted he was glad because when we interviewed Mark Sanford here. He, he seemed like he was very liberty-oriented, at least in the questions we gave him. Uh, you know, oh, I, I asked a standard, a standard question, so I thought, like, I couldn't believe this guy's an enemy of Trump. I thought, man, when he was on the show, I was, 
I mean, I was doing somersaults when he won because remember, you asked, you asked him, and he asked this guy, you always ask these questions that make me so uncomfortable. And he's like, uh, ask him about his extramarital affairs. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> Well, I will say this. Uh, Mark Sanford is, was or is one of the most libertarian members of Congress. He is one of the strongest fiscal conservatives um, uh, in, the, in Congress's history. Um, that being said, we're just in a different time, and Trump is not liberty-oriented. He's not. He's not remotely libertarian at all. Um, he would be an opponent of Ayn Rand. Um, and uh, Mark and, and uh, South Carolina's first congressional district um, is one of the most. Um, you know, I, 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 I try to tell everybody that you know I work for Curtis Bostic. I'm friends with Tim Scott. You know, I try to stay very familiar with. I have a great network actually in South Carolina, but South Carolina's uh, first congressional district is is older. Uh, they they are very libertarian. In fact, they're more libertarian than Justin Amash's district in Michigan. They might even be more libertarian. Yeah, they might be more libertarian than um, than New Hampshire. So there's there's like little mini hotbeds of libertarian uh, type voters inside of the GOP, but they are the most educated people on the fiscal issues of any congressional district in the entire country, hands down. And I mean, I've worked in 36 different states or more, and um, the the fact that he lost, that Mark Sanford lost should be alarming to any ideologue. We are done with those days. Trump has, re- Trump has remade the GOP. It's his GOP. And the idea that older voters are willing to change their voting habits and an ideology that they cling to better than anyone else in the country should send ripple effects that if you're not on the side of this new populist conservative type of a wave, if you stick to that libertarian conservative type of wave, you are going to lose because if you have older people who are changing their voting habits, which does not happen, <laughs> this does not ever happen, um, uh, then something is happening. This is like the Great Awakening. This is the Enlightenment. This is the Renaissance. This is, you know, if you want to call it, it's the Dark Ages. It's, you know, however, whatever your view on it, we are looking at a cataclysmic shift greater than the Reagan Revolution. This is, this is, this is at a deeper, deeper level. This is way past Reagan, and I don't think enough people are appreciating um, the, the, the political science that Donald Trump is breaking. She should not have won. She, you, know, you, you could have given me 100 districts that would have flipped in a, in a GOP primary, and I would have put Mark Stanford as the safest. Uh, so, you well, know, Marsha Roby uh, in Alabama. Allie, since, yeah. since, this is, since this is my district, and I am a yeah. part of the leadership in the county GOP, as well as I run a Tea Party here. I can tell yeah. you that it's a heavy military retirement here, yeah. and a lot of them are still extremely angry for him going AWOL from the governor's, of the governor's mansion. I've had some of them where he showed up at the meeting, and they would walk out. That's how angry yeah. some of these people are with him. Uh, some of the wow. things he's done where he stopped uh, – he said he wants to prevent any offshore drilling – and I, this is something I know a lot about, and he's wrong on that issue. It would be an economic boom to the area, and we have certain pockets here that are extremely poor. It would be providing jobs for these people that is closer. Instead of traveling all the way out to Hilton Head or all the way up to Charleston for work, they would have something locally. Uh, another issue that he just recently floated that got a lot of people angry was having FEMA 
buy up properties in flood areas because people made investments in real estate, purchased property in areas that are flood zones and didn't take the proper precautions, it's then the government's responsibility to buy up their property. And when I saw that, I shot out a message to him, and I said, you've got to be kidding me. So some of the things he started to switch on started to piss people off, honestly. So uh, he has always been a strong conservative. I mean, I was there with him in his inauguration at the governor's mansion. I, he's on speed dial. I text him all the time. But he also supported uh, certain speakers of the House. I got on the phone and had a 20-minute conversation with him. And he said, Annie, you don't understand. This was a backroom deal that was done months ago. And I said, why are you supporting a backroom deal? Why aren't you fighting it? And this, some of the things that we saw happening, it's, we said it's time for change. Let me bring this caller in on the line because they've been waiting patiently. They're from the Philadelphia area. Erica 267, you're on the air live. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. Our guest is Ali Alexander. To whom am I speaking? Hi, Annie. And, uh, and Chris, this is Burgess. Burgess Owens. I know you have the Philadelphia number on there. This is, I'm calling from Salt Lake City. Oh! How oh, you doing? I am so honored. All right. You know, I see that you're coming up on the show uh, soon, too. <laughs> so you surprised well, me. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think this is kind of a calling, but I've I, I had a chance to listen to both of you guys, and I'm really enjoying your, your comments and, uh, and insights for sure. Oh, well, thank you. So feel free to join the conversation. Uh, we have Ali Alexander out of Texas, a uh, former football great. I have to mention that because I love football and I love my NASCAR. <laughs> Purchase Owens. <laughs> What a surprise. Oh, man. Um, Allie, I wanted to change direction a little bit because there has been certain attacks, and you mentioned this with the attack on Kane West, and he actually has earned a bundle out of, you know, the statements he's made and standing by his statement. Instead of, you know, killing his career, it's actually given him a huge boost. But recently someone came out by the name of DJ Moby and made some comments uh, comparing Trump to Hitler. Uh, you had Joe Scarborough saying the immigration policy is similar to the Holocaust. Uh, this is this is where our mainstream media and Hollywood weirdos are really <laughs> losing it. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know what to add to that, but uh, you know we're we're in a time of change, and uh, and uh, you know I'm excited for it because uh, you know the status quo favors the corporatists favors the oligarchs uh, and favors the people who want this paradigm of progressivism. And uh, so, you know, that we have a fighting chance, I think is very exciting. And uh, I love what Kanye is doing. Uh, Kanye is actually a, a viewer of my Periscope and he watches uh, Jordan Peterson and Candace Owens and Scott Adams. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm very, I'm very excited uh, about what could happen and, you know, I go out to L.A. now once every other month and uh, meet with a lot of people that people think are liberal that aren't. And, uh, you know, they're they're pretty high up in the industry. So, uh, you know, there is a cultural revolution coming uh, or or a resistance already there. Well, it's it's amazing that I do see people coming out of the woodwork. And I get this a lot where I'm a former Democrat or I'm a reformed Democrat. And the Democratic Party verges of your generation, my generation, is completely different than the Democratic Party of this generation. The John F. Kennedys are gone. Mm. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Okay. Uh, if I can just to change just a quick minute. 
and I'll say that I'm probably like most black Americans out there. Uh, I, I've been a, a conservative for the last 32 years. Uh, uh, oh, no, sorry, the last, yeah, last 30 years. And before that, I was strictly a uh, Democrat, uh, liberal. And what, what you find out as time goes on is it's, it's, not, it's not the same party that, that I grew up in. It's not the same focus, family, um, uh, country, all those things that, that we, as a, as a culture, as a black culture, have had some very strong conservative bases. We're finding out that the, this party has moved away from us in a big way. So um, I, I, I personally don't look at myself as a Republican or a, a, a Democrat. I look at myself as a conservative with those ideologies and Judeo-Christian values. And whatever, wherever those principles and values lead me is where I go. I've just been led away from the Democratic Party for a long, long time now. You know, um, I've, I've sometimes asked certain people from the black community, and I said, you're a churchgoer, right? And I said, you know, yes. you believe in marriage with one man, one woman. You believe in the preservation of life. You believe in the family unit. And if you believe in all those things, then aren't, why aren't you with the Republican Party, the party that fought for abolition and helped to free the slaves? So why are you going with a Democratic Party that is seeking to tear down the family? Lyndon Johnson, with the great experiment, um, turned around and put you in generational you know, servitude to welfare. So why would you stick with that when it's only for your votes? Why would you go with someone that wants to help lift you up instead of keeping you tapped down? And they never have an answer. It's just my family's always voted Democrat, and that's the way it goes. You know, and, and unfortunately, I think uh, what we've done is we've kind of looked at uh, our politics almost like a religion. And uh, that means it's take a lot more faith than it does logic. Um, and if we were ever to take the time to, to, to look at our history, one of the things that Karl Marx said back in the 1800s is that the first battleground, he's a socialist, by the way, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the founder of, of Marxism. He said the the the, uh, uh, the beginning of to, to change our country around the first battleground is the rewriting of history and and what's happened over the years over the decades is a lot of our great history has been stripped away so that we are we are at a point now in the narrative that so much of the success we had many Americans across the board have no idea, for instance, that uh, that the black community after World War II led our country in terms of the, the growth of the, the middle class, the uh, the percentage of men committed to marriage, percentage of men committed to education, uh, all those great things that define a, a good society, one that's prosperous moving forward, big, dreaming big, uh, that history has been stripped away. So you now have a lot of folks because of progressive education that or, or no education at all now believe that we're a country that does not give us the opportunity to live the American dream, even though we are. So I would just say this. Uh, our greatest enemy today is not a black and white issue. It's an ideology. It's the Marxist, socialist, and atheist. It's the black elitists, those who live in the dream of the American dream, but, but look down their nose at the rest of Ameri- black Americans that don't think that we should have an opportunity to dream and, and overcome and move forward. Uh, and, and, and so that's, we have to recognize that it's an ideology, uh, and and that's what President Trump has really knocked in the head. I mean, we're, we're back to just plain old basics. We love America, period. We love America first, what, you know, the good and the bad, the fact that we're the best out there, the best ever in the history of mankind, and we're going to make it better because we look at each other from inside out, not outside in. That's the American way. So uh, I, I feel very upbeat and positive where we're heading off to now, particularly with the black community. We're waking up because we had eight years of a disaster called President Obama, 
And a lot of people coming out of that misery now realizing that there's a much better way. And that better way, even though they've been told, it's not a positive way. They're, they're, they're feeling, experiencing success, more income, more opportunity, more hope. And that's how we get this country back. Amen to that. that. Amen. Um, I have <laughs> yes. a quick question for I have a quick question for Alex. Um, two things. Um, oftentimes, when um, people like yourself or Alex Jones, uh, oftentimes when uh, I guess you call them drive by or the the well known media, I, whatever you want to call it, the the fake news, but they often say, "Well, conspiracy theorists like," and then they follow Alex Jones or you know they throw a name in there. Is is that kind of uh, is that kind kind of uh, you know um, is that kind of everyone's motto to try to uh, basically uh, take away whatever facts they're saying uh, by poisoning someone's brain right away that what they're saying a conspiracy theorist Alex Jones or whatever um, is that you know they're is that the way uh, without slamming them trying to uh, debunk whatever facts they have. And uh, second, and, and following up, how in the how in the world uh, um, how in the world is uh, your groups and Ale- are, are they growing? Are our numbers growing in basic libertarian types uh, of uh, people? Was that for me? I think that was for Ali. Yeah. I think that was for yeah, Ali. Sure. Mike, you got to get closer to your microphone because you were fading in and out. But uh-huh. Ali, I think the question was to you. Yeah, I think um, you know I, I I try to dissect this a little bit in my, uh, in, my in my periscopes is we're all programmed um, you know whatever you believe you know some people believe in God others believe in the simulation uh, you know others believe in, in chance or whatever but what we have learned is that um, we're all very 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 programmable and that our brain can be you know we can isolate where emotions originate where feelings originate. And one thing that the media uh, has excelled at is essentially a, a level of psychological control uh, that we both gave them and then they mastered. And, uh, you know, using adjectives like that uh, are a way of framing the debate. And so all great people uh, in persuasion have talked about this. And so, you know, for example, there's a teacher, uh, Erickson, I forgot what the dude's first name is, uh, who's who's essentially responsible for some very great people, uh, from Oprah to Tony Robbins to Scott Adams to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump's pastor was a student of this guy and taught about the power of positivity. And so, uh, you know, Scott says, he who frames the debate, uh, you know, is going to win it basically 9.9 out of 10 times. And so uh, there's a lot of study in this. And so when you call someone controversial or you say is under fire, uh, these are things that, they're teaching in J school and uh, that is passed down as a tradition from editors to their journalists. And then those journalists eventually become editors and they know what, what works. And so uh, it's easy to say the GOP is attacking uh, president Obama. Uh, and then write that same headline is Donald Trump is under fire and knowing that 80% of the people who interact with that story will never actually read the story. Uh, and that even people who read the story will read it under that frame. Uh, it's it's a powerful control tool. But but I will say I, I think that we're growing leaps and bounds. Just before I hop off and go out to lunch with my niece, I think that I think that you're seeing young people. It's popular amongst the young people right now in college to be pro-America 
and that, that serves an advantage for us. You're seeing more Christians wake up. You're seeing Catholics who vote Democrat um, are shifting, and I think they're about equal divided now, or maybe even Trump won uh, the Catholic vote by a little bit. You're seeing, you know, you know, black, uh, you know, the black vote flirting with the GOP uh, is reaching, you know, um, modern historic levels. So, I mean, we're really, we're really in a time of change and all of that time or all of that change seems to go be going right. The people who are stuck on the left are actually going more left. So liberals are becoming progressives and there, there, there's a thing, a phenomenon called the justice Democrats. And, I mean, there, there's a whole civil war happening in the, in the Democratic Party that people aren't covering, and the liberals are censoring some of the progressives, uh, the honest progressives. So it's, it's a very, very fascinating time to be alive. Uh, but there's, I, I just want to say it again. There's not been upheaval like this spiritually, politically, and socially and culturally since, like, the Great Awakening. This, is, this exceeds all modern metrics. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm so excited to be a part of it. I think y'all are a part of it, you know, citizens taking up the free press mantle. And, um, you know, thank you guys for having me. Oh, it has uh, been a pleasure. Uh, oh, sorry. Before you bounce, where do you see Justin Amash? Uh, where would you like to see Justin Amash from, from your own individual standpoint? Um, I've been with him <laughs> since the inception. Uh, you know, it's a love-hate relationship because I'm in uh, I'm in politics too. But I mean, he's he's yeah. just outstanding. I'm a big Trump supporter, but I stand by 100% of his voting because you know it's constitutional. But I always think Justin is I don't want to say a waste. I think you understand what I mean when I say that. Yeah, he just yeah, needs to yeah. be in such a higher. Word, help me here, just uh, and and I, just so you know, I'm going to suggest this to him, act, acting like it was my idea. Uh, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where he wants to end up. I think um, I like Justin Amash's heart. Uh, I just I come down on a more practical side of politics than he is. So, but I do like how he explains his vote. Every vote, I like that he's libertarian, and that's probably where my heart is. That's just not where my head is. You know, libertarianism is not a successful model. It's never been a successful model. Uh, you know, for governing people, it would probably be a successful model in a country of. 200,000 educated people. Um, but outside of that, um, libertarianism, you know, can't work because it's contra to, to human nature. And, you know, and, and I think that's very obvious, you know, as a, as a, as a guy who went to started out in Bible college, but still loves a lot of secular stuff. Um, you, you, you know, and ran and libertarianism being so originating from objectivism makes it means that they cannot recognize that man is inherently evil or bad or that we struggle with sin or, or any of that. And if I want to put it in secular terms, they are people who reject Thomas Hobbes' view of, of man. And, and fundamentally, the, the great thing about what Jefferson did in framing uh, the Declaration is he accepted the obligations and the government of John Locke while assuming the nature of man with Tom Hobbes. This was the perfect hybrid that has led to the greatest country in the history of man. And libertarianism cannot work because it ignores the fact that, you know, man is not motivated uh, by financial greed alone. Uh, he is corrupted by greed. And uh, so anyway, so Justin Mosh annoys the hell out of me. Um, I really don't <laughs> want him anywhere. I probably wouldn't pass that along. But you know what? I, you know, if he was, if he was, 
if he was more practical like Rand Paul, then I'd say he's in the Senate. But maybe he would do good with the people of his state. Maybe he'd make a fantastic lieutenant governor or attorney general of Michigan uh, one day. But uh, right now, he's just a thorn in my side. I'm, uh, and one thing, I, one thing I do want to encourage people, because I think we're all coming from the same place. We just see a different outcome, um, is read, you know, if you have one takeaway, read from the Claremont Institute the article, The Flight 93 Election. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the Fight 93 election. It will change. It will, for those conservatives who hate Trump, it will let them know where those of us who are conservatives who accept the president's vulgarities, accept his populism and his protectionism, why we believe what we believe. We believe the plane is going down and we are rushing the cockpit and we don't have any time for principles that hold us behind. And I don't think that Justin Amash believes that the nation's about to fall. I do, and I will do anything I can do to save it, and so will Trump. And I don't think Justin Amash would. And, uh, you know, I don't have any time for people in the trenches who aren't ready to fight. <laughs> I love that. So maybe analogy. don't tell him that. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I say it all the time. He lacks backbone. I love his voting record, too. I just see, you know, you're going to uh, – nobody – Anyone who wants to preserve what we have, uh, of what, whatever we can preserve, uh, if you plan on doing it with clean hands, you're, you're, not, you're, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you all so much for having me. Um, oh, God, you're it was, awesome. It was great stuff. I, I watch your videos, and I steal your rhetoric all the time. Good, good. Steal it, remix it, spread it. Well, it was great when Annie said, you know, can you jump in? And I quickly looked at her page to see who the guest was. I was like, damn, hell yeah. (laughs) See you in an hour. All right, thank you. Thank you all. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Oh, forgot the other story. We still have have Burgess Owens with us, too. Uh, Burgess, a lot was said here uh, because – a lot was said here because if you think about that, we're dealing with libertarianism. Uh, that, as you said, could never work because it leads to anarchy. If you allow everyone to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, somewhere along the way it's going to infringe on someone else's liberties and rights. Yes. Uh, well, I tell you, first of all, I, I think that, uh, the little monologue was, was spot on. I, I, I couldn't agree with it more. Uh, I'm one of those guys who, uh, who believes if you're going to fight, let's, let's, let's get it on. Let's, let's not uh, play nice. Let's get it on. Let's win, particularly when it comes down to our country. Uh, and we have, you know, it comes down to very simply, we've been based, our country's been based on Judeo-Christian values. Uh, there's right and wrong. There's, there's, uh, there's good and bad. And if we understand what that North Star is, and there's a God in heaven who's given us um, an idea not only our ideas, give us a very strong direction in terms of how we should treat each other, how we should do each other, and how we should serve. We understand that, which is what our country's always been about. Have we done it perfectly? Absolutely not, because we're, we're people. We're men and women. We make mistakes. We have our own self-interest in place. But on, on the most part, we are a country because we believe in those values that we're continually trying to do our best and be our best. That's why I can look back over the last 50 years, growing up in, in Tallahassee, Florida, segregated south with, with, uh, with the young people that we did not get along but now we are best of friends because we've grown up. We do what Americans do best. We always look for our better selves, and we're trying to find a way to serve. Uh, the left doesn't do that. They take. They, they use, abuse, and discard. That's what they're good at. So uh, in, in essence, uh, I, I, I believe there's, uh, 
you know, there's not a middle ground when it comes down to fighting for our country. And, and I don't have time either, to be honest with you, for those who want to play nice or those who want to play both sides, or both ends of the, of the scale, or those who want to come to the plate and say they're for the American way and do everything they can to vote against it or to stand against it or put down those who are fighting, fighting for it. So uh, 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 to make a long story short, I'm a guy when, when, when President Trump, when Canada Trump was, was, uh, was first coming on board, I could not see it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know him. I have become a very strong uh, President Trump fan because I know he loves our country. And I don't care how he articulates it. At the end of the day, we know in his heart he loves our country, and those who love our country can relate to him, and we're on his side because we want our country to win. That's a huge amen to that, Burgess. Beautiful. Burgess, how do you address people who uh, – oh, Andy, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say we have our next guest in on the, on the line. So, Burgess, if you, don't, you want to hang around, I'll be happy to have you stick with us because he's going to be talking about school choice. And I think a lot you said about education earlier would tie in with our guest who is with us, Peter Murphy, on the line. Good afternoon, Peter. Hello. Is this Ann? Yes, it is. I'm Hello? Annie, the Radio Tricky hostess, along hey, with my guest doing? co-host today is Cool Mike, and who popped in just to say hi to us is Burgess Owens. So <laughs> we got a nice crowd here. All right. Uh, Peter is the vice president of policy for a group out of upstate New York uh, called Invest in Education. And, Peter, actually, I think you live in the same town as my sister does. Uh, she recently moved, I think, into that town that you live in. So, uh, in Rensselaer uh, County? I believe so. I have oh, to double-check because like, I have to look at her address because <laughs> it's a new move. Like this time of year. Uh, and I don't <laughs> write her letters very often. <laughs> but your okay. group, Invest in Education, what is that all about? And how did you come so about with that group? Yeah, so we set up several years ago to advance and advocate for school choice policies in New York State particularly. Um, New York State is a uh, heavily urbanized areas, very low quality education for thousands of children. We want it. We want a better way for them. We want to get them out of that. It's the surest way out of poverty, and it changes the trajectory of a child's life to get them the, the best quality education we can give them. And school choice is a way to do that. And so we set about to bring that to a reality. Uh, we ran. We came close. We ran up against you know, a very obstinate political class. And what we decided to do when we've seen how states can be very resistant to change and opportunity when it upsets the prevailing, you know, special interests. And so we went to Washington and we're working Congress right now who's more receptive to the idea overall. We're working with Congress and the Trump administration to try and bring school choice opportunities nationwide to overcome the recalcitrance that exists in too many states where uh, many of these, you know, local politicians are more susceptible to interest group pressure. And so we're hoping Congress and the Trump uh, administration can break that log jam and overcome that, that state opposition. Now you talked about several different ways in which doing it. And one um, trying to get this, one was for a tax credit. Right. And um, I have I have problems with tax credits. How how are the, do they work? Because if you're not paying taxes, how can you get a tax credit? I'm talking about well, for someone who's for below the, who, the poverty level. Right. So what, what it does, Anne, is a tax credit is an incentive for the taxpayer to do something with his or her money. 
right? So by giving a tax credit for doing a specific activity, you're driving more private sector donations or investment to that activity. Uh, there's tax deductions right now, uh, which are more modest, uh, at, you know, tax breaks, tax advantages that, that, that exist all over the place. But a tax credit is a more generous incentive to drive funding where you want it to go in terms of public policy. What we're advocating for is a tax credit that would drive more charitable donations from businesses and from individuals to go into scholarship funds, these nonprofit entities that raise money and distribute scholarship funds for K-12 education to low-income and working-class families. And in effect, it's an, ultimately, it's a progressive scheme by which you can provide the ed- educational choice to people who can't afford it uh, so they have what, you know, already have, and that is, you know, quality schooling, uh, alternatives to what they would be stuck with in their neighborhoods, in their uh, high-needs communities. And we're trying to drive more money into those scholarship funds so more families, more children can have those opportunities to go to the best school that meets their needs. It's funny because uh, the church I go to ha- runs its own, and you talked about yeah. on your website, you talked specifically about you know the Catholic church, their schools, because everyone knows in their neighborhood there's a Catholic school somewhere. But our church has done the very same thing, and we set up a, started off with a kindergarten through third, and in a matter of just a small handful of years, I think less than five, we've already got kids graduating from high school heading into college. We have for the last right. couple of years. And it's amazing what the private sector can do far better than the public sector because someone put up a challenge. He went and visited the school, which is called Holy Trinity, here in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, an individual went and he toured the school with the uh, the principal. And he came back and he said, he sat down and he said, listen, I will donate to this school half a million dollars towards scholarships if the parishioners will raise an equal amount, match it, and you will get it, but you have a total of eight months to do it. Do you know we scrambled and we went and knocked on doors <laughs> and grabbed people and d- dug deep in our pockets? We didn't raise $5 million and 500000 We raised 900000 Wow. So the private sector can do better than the public. I would rather see no public education, or if it is a public education, something like a charter school where the parent must give 20 hours a month so that way they know exactly what's going on in the school and they have skin in the game. They're not paying a tuition because it's all coming out of the public funds as if it was a public education, but the parents, in order to get that, in order to earn that position in the charter school, has to give time to the school. This is where I think works better. Well, look, for millions of Americans, public education works just fine, okay? And more power to them, and we'll always have a public school system, and we should, and, uh, and that's great. But for millions of other Americans, uh, public education isn't working out so well, and, it's, and they're resistant to change, and there's no accountability, and there's low performance and low quality and, and dangerous in many places. And no matter how much money we throw at it, no matter how many years go, go by, uh, change just doesn't happen, and families see kids grow from youngsters to teenagers to young adults, and they're just not where they need to be. They're not prepared. So, look, we, we've got to deal with this. And, look, you can keep putting more money and more effort into public education, 
but we need to be doing this over here. We need to be driving more school choice opportunities for more children. It's not going to stop anyone from trying to improve public education, public schools, but we've got to do more school choice opportunities, which can happen very quickly. We can bring change quickly to these communities and these families. So while their kids are young or, or while they're gettable and teachable and trainable, we can bring those educational opportunities to them. We, and, and a tax credit, as we've designed in, in Congress, is the type of thing that will make that happen. When you generate more charitable money, and we've seen this happen in, in places like your state in South Carolina, it's happened in North, uh, really well in Florida and Pennsylvania, states have already shown how effective this approach is when you're, in effect, redistributing money from donors to parents and empowering parents to put their child in a better school. So uh, that's what we're about, and we need Congress to make to act on this now. We need, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, has been a champion of this issue, uh, but we've got to get him to uh, to get it done. <laughs> you know, Lin, uh, well, Lindsey I, Graham, I, I can contact his office. About it, but yeah, I mean, look, we've got to contact uh-huh. these 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 Congress members and, and senators to get them to move on this um, because the teacher unions are the ones standing in the way and, you know, we, we can't let that happen. Well, as you can tell from my dialect, I'm a, uh, a member of the New York state now, part of South Carolina, former New Yorker. Um, but you also talk <laughs> about love it. the, uh, and uh, you also talk about the education savings account. Now, do they work anything like these medical savings accounts? Because the interest rate you get on them are abysmal. It's not worth it, honestly. Uh, what is what? How is this well, the, education savings account structured? So uh, the specific thing we're looking at on that issue is the savings account really is is a is a pot of money that in this particular proposal we're backing nationally, it's for the military families. So if a military family wants an alternative education for their child, um, if they're, because they move around so much and, they're, and they're, uh, they're enduring great sacrifices in their home life and, and, and the, the transitory nature of their, of their child's life and education, uh, we're proposing that an education savings account be established and funded by the federal government that if a military family wants to access that money that sits there, uh, they can do so for private school or homeschool expenses or online learning or special education needs to any number of services we outline in the legislation. So it's not really, it's your personal savings account, but you know, you draw the money down as you incur expenses as opposed to, you know, it sits in a bank and earns interest. That's not, it's not the same concept here. Uh, but it's called an edu- a military education savings. If families want to access it who have, you know, who have a parent or two in the, in the serving our country in uniform. Well, um, I know some of these states have enacted something similar to that because, I, like I said, Correct. I went through the website and I pulled up some of the reports. Uh, some of the states do have it. I think there's only one state that ha- in this institutes it completely. But other states do not have it for the military. Instead, they have it for special eds. Now, I've got a right. friend of mine, and exactly. I watched his Difficult. daughter growing up, and the struggle they have with the education because a lot of these public schools have absolutely no facility for special needs children. 
Yeah, so educated savings accounts exist in about six states, and mo- I think I think all of them, or at least four of them, are specifically for children with disabilities who have a what's called an individualized education plan. I think Arizona has it for military personnel. Um, Nevada, I think, goes broader. But the upshot is that it's a way to access services for your child that you know improve upon what they're what they're getting now, uh, that build on what they're getting now, that are an alternative. Um, and 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 the way you know when you when you start encouraging, when you provide scholarship opportunities to go somewhere, or uh, empower a parent to to get services, educational needs to, to meet, you know, dis- disabled or other needs for their child, you know, that's something that can be done quickly. You know, we don't have years to wait. Children are young once. And these school choice vehicles we're talking about, education savings accounts, scholarship, tax credits, these are things that bring change quickly to a family, okay? This, this brings about quick necessary change now, not five years from now. Every other education reform you hear about, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, some sort of broad public school reform that gets announced, that stuff takes forever. I mean, the reaping the fruits of that and, and seeing it transform ch- children's learning, it takes years to happen, and, and there's almost no guarantee of even success. The, school, the beauty of the school choice approach is it brings immediate improvement to children's lives. And that's why we have to act on it now while they're young, while we can reach them and, and improve their lives for the better. You know, you also talk about homeschooling. And I'm not surprised that military families on average, on the national average, twice as much educate at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in the heart of what we call the Tri-Command here in South Carolina with the Marine Corps Air Station one direction, Paris Island Creek Depot in the other, and the Naval Hospital. We have a heavy, heavy concentration of young families oh, yeah. and kids within our school system. And you know, I do know that a lot of them would prefer to homeschool them because it's easier for them to keep track and keep the kids on track along with their lessons. And these kids come out brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and well-adjusted kids. Um and I'm a proponent for homeschooling. So how are you dealing with it with the homeschooling now? Well, the military, from a, from a military family's perspective, what the education savings account would do is it would help them defray those expenses with homeschooling. And, and part of homeschooling a child is you could access online learning or even send your child to a public school for a specialty course. All of that would be covered under a military education savings account, all the expenses involved there. So so I think a lot more military families are homeschooling their children because that's something you can do consistent, consistently no matter where you live. If you're moving around a lot, if, you're, if a child's moving five times and you're homeschooling that child, well, there's a consistent educational experience for that child. And what the ESA allows is, you can not only defray the expenses of, of administering homeschooling, but they can take specialty courses. They can do online learning to supplement the parental teaching. Um, and so I think a lot more military families would become home, homeschoolers if they had, you know, $4,500 a year that could defray those expenses, pay for that online learning, even access special needs or tutoring 
for certain specialties that the parent wouldn't necessarily, you know, have the have the expertise for. Yeah, because I was surprised that 80% of the military families have their children in public school, and there's a large portion of them that have absolutely no choice of any of where they go for their education. They have no choice, and they must attend public school. So, you know, that's why I like homeschooling, because if a family has to move, say you're halfway through the school year, you're interrupted in whatever that child was learning, and you're going to a exactly. new school district, they now be on the same path. So the kid basically has to start the school year all over again. And it actually right. stunts their learning ability, which is why I think homeschooling is perfect for anyone with a military family. Well, that's what we're fighting for. Uh, we have legislation on that as well that has more than 70 co-sponsors, but it's hit a bump in the road, and there's, there's opposition to that as well, uh, which is what we're constantly fighting back on. And so we need folks to speak up and step up and, um, and you know, appreciate the time on your show to tell your listeners to, you know, get involved and, and fight for these things that are important. Now, I have a question for you because I have a friend of mine. Sure. She started here in South Carolina, South Carolina parents involved with uh, education, and she's a dear friend, she and her husband, and she's taken it to the national level, where it's now USPIE, United States Parents Involved in Education. Have you ever thought of uh-huh. hooking up with that group? Uh, because they're very yeah, pro-choice and trying to get common core out of the school. Look, we we work with anybody who shares who shares these the interests in expanding school choice and, and educational opportunity to, to all children. I mean, that's really what it's about. There's no one way of doing it, and uh, and so we're happy to work with folks who. In fact, we have a growing coalition of organizations from all over the country in our what we call the USA Workforce uh, Coalition. This is the USA Workforce Tax Credit we were talking about earlier that would provide a scholarship uh, tax credit and also help invest in apprenticeships and workforce development. This is one piece of legislation that does both. And we have a, we have a coalition of over 200 organizations in support of that. So uh, they should go to uh, usaworkforce.org and uh, sign up and sign on to of that effort. Right now, I was just curious. Why do you what what is causing the Catholic Church from losing uh, since 1970s a large number of their their schools? What's the driving force behind that? Is that because well, I'm a former former Roman Catholic? Is it because uh-huh. of the new progressive ideologies that are coming into the Catholic schools and parents are no longer wanting to have that? If that's the case, that's probably a much more recent issue. Um, I don't think that's really what's been driving this overall. I mean, 19, you go back to 1970, you've got demographic issues to start with. You don't have as – the families are smaller, okay? I'm from a family of 11 children. <laughs> People don't have those numbers anymore. They don't have, they don't have a third of those numbers anymore in terms of four, – four kids is a big family nowadays. Four kids was not a big family in 1970. So you have just demographics. Families are smaller. That's one thing that drives the number down. You have fewer nuns that are teaching and being paid very little to do that. There's just fewer nuns in the Catholic Church that, that taught in many of these schools when we were, when we were little. Um, so, but I think demographic changes, kind of the changeover from nuns to, to lay people, and then you have, uh, you know, just cost. Uh, as things 
become more expensive, you have, you know, it's difficult to, you know, people start dropping off because they can't afford tuition, even modest tuition that the Catholic Church, that the Catholic schools typically charge. So, you know, as things, you know, as things get more expensive, they get more out of reach. And, and by the way, it's not just tuition, but just everyday life expenses. You know, when you start having two income earner families to keep up with expenses, uh, tuition is one of the first things that's going to drop off. And you, know, you just put your child in the public school. So there's a variety of, of factors that are driving the lower enrollments in Catholic schools over time, over the last two generations. Um, but there's still lots of schools like that out there. They do good work overall. And, and, and in fact, many non-Catholics send their children to Catholic schools because they're safer. They, they, their teaching is stronger. Uh, they have a values-based, you know, culture. Um, but, you know, so you have Catholic schools all over, particularly in urban areas that are filled with non-Catholics <laughs> who are getting a better quality education. That's what the parents want to send their kids. Yeah, because I also noticed that on the website you were talking about the Workforce uh, Tax Credit Act. And uh, growing up, guys used to have the shop class, and girls, we'd also, you know, we also had the home ec classes, and guys would also take it as well as girls to train us to be able to, once we step out of sight of high school, to have a, a droppable talent of some sort. And today's kids can't even balance a checkbook much less use you know, a regular keyboard because they've got their front fingers on their smart devices. A lot of them don't have the interpersonal skills that we were taught in school. So I like the idea of a workforce um, uh, a tax credit act to train these kids so once they step out, you don't have to go to college. You can get yourself a job, find a talent, and maybe progress up that way. Well, well you know, more and more that's becoming the norm. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd go to college right now. Um, if I was graduating high school, my own son went into the Coast Guard, uh, and he's thriving there, and he's getting the GI Bill to access when he gets out. So, um, but the but Congress is more and more looking at funding vocational education or career and technical education, those kinds of alternatives to traditional college that are much more suitable. For millions of, of young people who are just don't have the classroom kind of academic chops but can work with their hands, these folks like that are needed. These jobs are going begging. And, you know, if, we're, if we want to, you know, as manufacturing has, has been revived in this country, they need workers. They need skilled uh, workers. And there's good money in doing that. And so what this bill would do, not only would it provide a tax credit for K-12 scholarship donations, but it would provide a tax credit for businesses and individuals to invest in workforce and skills development. So you have, rather than sort of the government spending a bunch of money on workforce programs, which they'll always be doing, and okay, fine, whatever, but this is actually getting businesses to invest and spend the money with government, you know, giving them a tax credit to do it. So it's, it, it's kind of a public-private endeavor it's getting the their workforce and developing one and, and, you know, and enhancing their skills and making them more usable. 
you know, you, the, a lot of businesses used to take on apprentices, and for some reason, and after they still the 1980s, I mean, they, they use apprentices. But you don't see it as prevalent as you used to see it, say, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And for some reason, in the 90s, it just became out of fad, or maybe it was because there was no longer a tax credit for it. But it's a fantastic idea. We have a, a, a need for welders. We have a need of plumbers, uh, master electricians. These are things that we need in our everyday life and help to build the infrastructure of this country, but we're lacking people that are willing to do that. It's easier to send your kid to the college for a Bachelor of Arts degree in poetry that you'll never be able to use or in literature that you'll never be able to use. Instead, but you'll graduate with a lot of debt. <laughs> you'll graduate with yes. plenty of debt in the process. Well, this spells a big, I exactly. think, an important first step to kind of get away from the, well, not get away, but but supplement, okay, add on to the kind of spend the government spend down approach. This is getting private sector to invest in these things, and invest in their own workforce, and that's what a tax credit will do. And uh, and you know, let's get it started. Let's get it passed and. And, you know, see how it works and adjust along the way. But, you know, we've got to get this thing started. We've got to get buy-in from the business community and give them more incentive to, to, to invest in these programs. No, so absolutely. And, and programs work better in the private sector rather than in the government sector. And uh, if we have it in the private sector, if there's any problems, it gets fine-tuned immediately. If there's a problem in the government, they make more regulations to make it even worse. <laughs> so well, I like the, the idea job the private... You're... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, your your point's well taken, Anne. I mean, you take the Job Corps, which is a program been around for 30, 40 years. I mean, it's a mess. It's It just doesn't get good results. There's a big in, Inspector General's report that just, you know, castigated this, the ineffectiveness of that program. But the government keeps funding it at year in and year out even though the results are crummy. So, you know what, we can fight about repealing or replacing the Job Corps, but instead, let's just find another approach that we think is going to work a lot better and then and you know run with it. So we're trying this approach of a tax credit, getting businesses more involved, rather than government you know, funding these programs year in and year out, which come more about the people running the program than the people actually going through it. I mean, a lot of these programs are preserved because it's the public employees that get employed administering it, and they become a special interest in effect. So we're trying to get away from that and get, again, get private sector buy-in here, uh, get them to invest in, 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 and get better results. Well, that's a huge amen. Mike, you're sitting quietly back there in the corner, and you ran for school board. Well, I know. I was going to ask, um, where does Secretary DeVos, I'm, a, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan, so I'm always battling her. Where does she come in on this? I know, you know she's always talked about it, but she doesn't seem to do anything um, on this issue. Because I'm all, uh, Michigan obviously has extremely bad education, and uh, it seems like uh, the establishment controls everything. Even our charter schools are horrible. Well, I can't, I can't speak to Michigan specifically, but, I mean, Betsy DeVos has really dedicated her adult life to educational opportunity. She did a, a lot of uh, fundraising and, and, and championing school choice uh, before she became Secretary of Education. 
now that she's secretary, you know, her portfolio is a lot bigger than school of choice. I mean, it's a whole system nationwide and that's certainly keeping her busy. And uh, she's interested in, you know, military ESAs and, and scholarship tax credits, but, you know, she's more focused on encouraging states to do these things. Um, our focus has been that Congress has a role to play here and that uh, Congress can overcome using the tax code, not, not, not a, you know, a top-down bureaucratic approach, but use the tax code to get to overcome opposition in, in states towards school choice. That, that's, that's the approach we think needs to happen, and we hope she can get on board with that. Uh, Michigan, Michigan ranks last. You think you got it bad there, Annie? We're last. <laughs> I thought we were. <laughs> oh, by the way, our our school board is so bad. Uh, the school superintendent finally resigned uh, after an ethics violation and penalty, and he pleaded guilty after he attempted nepotism to hire his wife and several other different shenanigans he did. Finally, finally, he stepped down, but the taxpayers are going to be in the hole for somewhere close to a quarter million dollars once he leaves because of the package they gave him to get him to go. Um, we're right now in the middle of uh, elections trying to turn the school board over, and we can't turn the school district over until we turn the board over. we got an interim superintendent. We're crossing our fingers. He'll start cleaning up the system and pour more money per child rather than more money towards the administration. These school districts, these public school districts, are a mess. And putting something uh, like your plan in effect would be going a strong way to sending public school systems a message. Hey, listen, we're looking for alternative education for our, our kids. Your school districts may start to close the schools down because you're going to be losing those students. So if you want to keep the students coming to you, you better clean up your act, and it's a good message to sell. Even public school districts, as impervious as they are to change and improvement, will, can get a message like that because they don't want to lose money. If they start seeing a lot of kids exiting, they will respond and they will act. They won't be forced to. They won't have a choice to. Uh, I mean, our, first, our, our primary focus is getting better education for children. And however that happens, whether it's in private school, religious school, or the public school district that they go to, uh, we don't have a preference on that. We just want to see more opportunity, more choice, better access for, for more children. That's what we're about. So if the public schools respond positively and everybody wants to stay there, fine. That's a, that's a great outcome. That's to be celebrated. Yeah, now we do have some public schools that are excellent, and yet we mm-hmm. have others on the opposite end of the spectrum that are absolutely horrendous. And whether it's the school leadership or the school board or just the neighborhood where parents don't care, and you do have pockets of neighborhoods where parents just simply don't care. Maybe it's because the school district itself is not getting them involved, but you can have a school district, and ours is extremely large. Um, I forget the number of, of students in there, but it's a humongous number. And you can have from one spectrum where you've got kids where, with a 75% graduation rate, and you've got other schools where they're just barely struggling to with a 70% a 40% graduation rate. So it's, it's one size doesn't fit all, which is why I think something like you do, then a parent can choose. Make the choice. All right, I want to go with the 75% graduation rate and get my kid out of the low school. 
which would then force the low school to improve their graduation rates. Well, look, I mean, whether parents care or not, I mean, the schools, we have an, we have an obligation to educate their children as best as we know how and, and offer them a choice. And I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen parents of all kinds and all backgrounds respond to an educational opportunity that comes before them um, when maybe they didn't care up until a choice or opportunity was given to them. Then all of a sudden that got their attention and they cared and they stepped up. I've seen that all, uh, you know, constantly. Um, well, it is an excellent program, and I'm definitely going to make sure I get a hold of Tim Scott's office. I don't know how much uh, success I'll have with Lindsey Graham since I'm sort of persona non grata. <laughs> he doesn't like yeah. it when I stand there nose to nose and toe to toe and fight with him. <laughs> when, he, uh, when he mentioned Lindsey Graham, I heard that little moan in the background there for you, Annie. Um, uh, <laughs> question I have, it's a little outside your box, but it is not. And why the lack of teachers... Uh, to stand up and really, I mean, I think for the most part, teachers love teaching and they want to teach, but oftentimes districts and government bureaucracies put their hands behind their back. And contrary to what a lot of people think, I don't think most teachers are communists and want to talk about what a good man Stalin was and what a horrible man, you know, Reagan, all this was, but it seems like teachers are gutless. It seems like they simply won't stand up for their union or they won't stand up period. I mean, the more choice schools, the more they they could potentially make unlimited income. Well, I think there's a couple explanations. I mean, I think I think a lot of teachers did push back on the on the um, Common Core curriculum because the truth, the dirty little secret in this is that the teachers' unions were all for that. They were backing Common Core implementation. If you go back to 2009 and 10. The teacher unions were totally bought into that. Their members rebelled. And that's just not written about. The teachers are acting like this was imposed on them. But in fact, they were partners in implementing Common Core, and the teachers did not take well to it. So there was some pushback on that for sure. Um, I think overall, you know, the, the unions provide. For teachers, there's this sense of security. Job security is very paramount to them. They view the union is not infallible, but as a, as a you know as a job protection vehicle. You know, the union protects me from getting fired by some you know crummy principal or superintendent. So I think there's some obviously attachment to that, and you know there's not a lot of boat rockers out there, um, and. You know, the union is the one kind of voice in the building that they think stands up for them, and and so it's hard to kind of step outside of that. Now, many teachers have, because you have charter schools, you have really thousands of charter schools now around the country, and these are teachers that many of whom used to be public school teachers who went out on their own and went into a charter school, Many, of, most of which are not unionized, but because they wanted to teach, and they wanted they didn't want to be encumbered by the rules and the and uh, the directive, they wanted more freedom to do things that they believed in. So, uh, so they're out there, um, and that's, you know, that's what we want to keep encouraging. Well, Peter, it's a fantastic program. It's investineducation.org. 
people can click on the link in the show page and go directly to your website there and see the things. And you've got studies up there. Uh, you have also do uh, public education where you go out into the neighborhood, explain what's going on there, educate the parents and the teachers and the rest of the community leaders on what you're offering to help uh, support these programs that you have out there. To let you know, most of the people listen to our podcast in the archives. So as they're listening in the archives, they can continue to hit on it and continue to help look at your, your organization there. God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. Well, Ann, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to, to both of you, and uh, appreciate the opportunity for your listeners to, to hear us out. Thank you. Can I, can I ask one more question you. before you bounce out of here? No. Sure. No, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> We're, um, okay, it's, it's, right now it's June 2018. Um, oftentimes with, with just technology and whatever, things change we, and we can't stop the change. Where do you see public school, at, if we're on the same course we are now, where do you see it 10 years from now? Because, I mean, I'm seeing online schooling and just so many different, uh, so many different types of schooling. Uh, a junior in high school now has college credits. I mean, where do you see it if we were to do this show right now, 2028, and you're our guest? And we say, welcome back. It's been 10 years. Well, I hope there'll be more choice opportunities. I hope they'll, but, you know, public schools, look, they're, they've been around a long time. They're always, they're going to be with us always. Uh, the question is, you know, will they be better? Will they improve? Um, you know, they command a lot of money and, you know, they've, sometimes they're, you know, they're forced to change. I think more competition will bring about better quality public schools, but, they're going to be with us 10 years from now. And nobody's for their abolition. We just want parents to have something better. And if it means a different uh, schooling, then, then that's what we're in favor of. We're not vested in one system of doing things the way the public school establishment is, the way the teacher unions are. They want it their way. They want it under their canopy. I hope we see a, a, diminished, a, you know, a diminished power there. And, and that parents do have more flexibility. And I think what you're describing is inevitable. I think as this technology just continues to accelerate and people can do things online, I, I think the bigger question is, you know, where, where are colleges going to be? That's, the, that's an even bigger – public schools have kind of this ready stream of money coming in from property tax and, and, and state government aid. It's the higher education system that I think is going to have an even more abrupt – and different look 10 years from now because of what you're describing. Technology is making higher education. Uh, it's a bigger threat to that because its cost is so high. And, you know, that, that'll be the bigger change, I think, in that time period. Thank yeah. you for that. that well, Andy, it, thank you for letting me ask. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I can say, for one thing, um, here in South Carolina, because I am involved with the Tea Party here, um, we've been fighting several different tax initiatives where they're going to the local uh, communities and trying to get money for the state colleges. And wait, wait a minute. We say to them, wait a minute, you're already taking money out of our taxes for these higher universities, these colleges, and now you want to come back to the local community and tax them a second and third time. So that's what they have been trying to do over the last several years. And somewhere along the way, we, the taxpayers, are going to say enough is enough. We have started already to say enough is enough. We've defeated several different res- referendum initiatives to funnel more additional money from our local taxes 
up to the state because the colleges are not making it. So you may see a large shift more towards online. Right, right, indeed. Peter, it has been a pleasure, and I want to thank you for joining us, and we welcome you back. And if you get something new coming up, just feel free uh, to have Stefan get a hold of me. We'll have you back on. Well, Anne, thanks so much again. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, and God bless. Bye-bye now. All right. Check out uh, Peter Murphy and his website, his organization called investineducation.org. We've got only about 15 minutes left here, Mike. Uh, so we got ourselves a little bit of a free form. I thought someone else was supposed to call in, a friend of mine, uh, but he's MIA at the moment. And since we've got well, the I runoff coming on. He, he, Let me throw a question to you, okay. Annie. What's your take on uh, what Trump's doing in North Korea? And many uh, many of the mainstreams are saying uh, Kim Jong took uh, Donald to the cleaners. <laughs> I think Which it would be the other coming. way around. Yeah. Well, North Korea actually now needs us. If there's a chance for them to to start to move towards reunification with South Korea, South Korea is a wealth. Of, it's, it is a money pit. And North Korea wants to get its hands into that cookie jar. And if there's something they can do for a concession to get a hold of that money, because Kim Jong-un is accustomed to a life of luxury. And no way does he want to have to be overthrown because he's got a nation starving and dying at his feet. If he can turn around and get a hold of some of the North Korean cash and have China as a partner, China's licking its chops saying, ooh, let's get a hold of some of that wealth down in South Korea. That is why they're making concessions. They're going to be saber-rattling back and forth. We're going to see it going up and down, up and down. But in the end, I think we will see finally a peaceful North, North Korea. And maybe even in the future, not this year, maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now, a reunification of North and South Korea. That sure would be wonderful. And I, I think you're right. I think, uh, I think Trump has done a great job in just basically strangling them of finance. And uh, it's to a point where, you know, President Obama it just kept giving uh, past presidents, not just Obama, just kept beating and beating these people with American cash. Whereas Trump just pretty much blockaded any form of electronic transactions and as well as military. Obviously, we had our freighters, and I, um, I, I, I really think, um, you know, I like where Trump is going. I like him a lot. Um, I wish he were a little more uh, constitutional, but I, you know, he's got a set of balls on him like no one ever. I mean, he just literally walks <laughs> around insulting anyone he wants. Well, it's true, and, and, and you know, it, it, it's great. You know, we are Americans, and, you know, for so long when he says, you know, a trade, huh, how, for how long are we, were we just going to always be everybody's cash cow and always, always, you know, we're going to give you 100% of this, we'll take 50% back from you. I mean, how long are we just going to do this over and over? Well, you know, I was I was screaming when Nixon turned around and went to China and opened up, you know, negotiation with China. He says, wait a minute, why are you doing that? And Nixon actually started the ball rolling towards this direction. I, I disagreed with him then. It was not the time to do it, but that he felt he needed to. And then from that point on, China has been turning around and saying, all right, now we're going to take a little bit here. We're going to take a little bit there. We're going to take a little here. We're going to open up our, our country for your companies to come into our country 
and bring your industry to help us rise up from the poor. And, of course, we, we got sucker punched. Of course, we go over and says, yes, China, we'll, we'll be happy to come over and bring our industry and help bring you out of poverty. But China said, oh, the only way you'll do that is that you have to see to us all of your trade secrets, all of your industry secrets. So what did China do? This is, well, now we know all your secrets. Get out. We're starting our own factory. And China has done that over and over and over again. That's what they talk about when they talk about intellectual property. They're not talking about Keen West's CDs being sold on the street in China. They're talking about the actual intellectual properties that go into making cars, refrigerators, and solar panels, and wind turbines, and all these other heavy industries. They are now shipping out of China to the rest of the world. How much stuff are we buying here in the United States that says on the back of it, made in China? And I have to laugh. Every time I open up one of these plastic packages and you're fighting with it and you're cutting yourself up, you've got the scissor and the hacksaw and everything else trying to open up this package that has a stupid $5 flashlight in it. I'm going, I scream at it. So it's made and packaged in China just to frustrate the Americans. But China was smart and they've been stealing our industries. And Trump is correct. We've got to change the trade wars. Ali Akbar had said earlier, China is a rising power. And if we're not careful, they will surpass us in, on the world stage. And our voice will then start to be silenced. And that will be the fall of the United States as the greatest nation in the world. And we're destroying ourselves yeah. by allowing this to happen. They're well, screaming about like the trade fact. wars. With, I was oh, going to say, they were screaming about the trade wars with uh, Trudeau in, in Canada. But they, they tariff our dairy products going into Canada at 267%. And they're upset because Trump said, well, I'm going to raise it to 100% on our side. So here's there. But the Canada has been having a trade war with us, and we haven't even been paying attention to it. So Trump is doing well, it right. So go ahead, Mike. My rant. I, I, no, I, you are accurate. The, what's wrong with simply saying, we'll take the same deal we gave you? That's simple. I, 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 what, what we've come across, what we have is we have a generation indoctrinated into an ideology, and they're backed by many of the progressive communist baby boomers who believe, um, you know, they, have, they think this country just it established its wealth and its greatness through stealing and pimping off other nations and just crushing, you know, the little guy. But the, their biggest problem is they're lazy, worthless American progressives with an entitlement mentality. Not even Cuba will take them. So, I mean, that tells you we're stuck with these people. I mean, <laughs> nobody wants them because they're worthless to anybody. I mean, they have this entitlement mentality, and the problem is that, the, I mean, they give nothing. Uh, they give nothing back. They also are their lifelong Democrats because, as we know, with the party, They've created that necessity. You need the party in order to survive, like uh, almost like you need the plantation owner in order to survive. So, I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. simple. We gave you this deal. We'll take the same. Trudeau's an idiot. And he's he right. Uh, up until the 1970s, we had unilateral agreements across the world. Each country had a separate agreement with the United States, and we treated them depending upon how they went into that treaty. A unilateral agreement gives us personalized, one-on-one -on -one interaction with that country. 
What we may have had for Britain may not have been the same as Canada, but similar. What we had with Germany may have not been the same as what we had with Japan. Depending upon what type of a trade war they wanted or trade agreement they wanted was what we entered into. And it was a treaty that was always brought before the Senate for its advice and consent. It was voted on in the Senate to become an official treaty. This stopped in the 1970s. We had these multifaceted ones, the NAFTA, TAFTA, or whatever the heck it was, the latest flavor of the month of these multinational trade agreements, and they haven't worked. We've seen industry flee the United States because of overregulation, overtaxation, and these stupid agreements. With Trump, we're seeing business starting to come back to the United States because he said, I'm done with this. No more multinational. It's going to be one-on-one. How you treat us is how we will treat you. So you want to be nice, we'll be nice. You don't want to be nice, we won't be nice. Plain and simple. And it's working. It simply is working. And the Democrats don't get it. Why? Because they're not making money off it. We've got one last-minute guest for the last five minutes of the show who's probably going to be a little abashed. Let's bring him on. Drew McKissick of the South Carolina GOP chair. Good afternoon, Drew. Better, better late than never. Good afternoon. I am so sorry. We have been like chickens with our head cut off here with these events for next week we're trying to put together and phones have been kind of crazy <laughs> i apologize <laughs> well as i say all i say is you're busier than a one-armed paper hanger that's for sure <laughs> uh that's that's not a bad analogy right now call me in two weeks we'll have a little bit more time <laughs> <laughs> you'll it's probably be fun, vacationing we... someone in the caribbean <laughs> I'm oh, out of yeah, here now. Exactly, exactly. But we've got, you know, we've got an interesting primary, a runoff going on, rather. We've got two debates coming up next week, uh, one on Monday night for the 4th Congressional District runoff, uh, and then another now on Wednesday night for the gubernatorial uh, runoff uh, at the Newberry Opera House. Uh, and we've been flooded in details getting those events together, and that's what's kept us so busy. But um you know, the campaigns are getting interesting, and, you know, uh, you've seen uh, more activity uh, in the last two days by the different campaigns, uh, you know, the Warren campaign and the McMaster campaign. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's getting, you know, it's a lot of activity. It's getting interesting. That's a good word. Interesting covers a lot of ground. <laughs> oh, that it does. That it does. And it's funny because, you know, um, Watching the whole thing, and I've had most of the candidates up on the show here. Uh, I was trying to get John Warren, and his campaign has not been, you know, answering me. And McMaster's every time I contact him, oh, he's too busy. But we've had some of the other candidates, and we've had good conversation, good debate. But Warren's coming in as an outsider, as where we have McMaster's as the old school establishment. And we're seeing throughout all these things, a lot of the voters are now saying out with the old and in with the new. So how is McMaster's looking against Warren in the polls so far? Uh, well, I have honestly, I have not seen any, um, you know, internal polls from any of the campaigns at this point since the primary on Tuesday. Uh, of course, we know, you know, Henry came in the primary with 42%, uh, and Warren, I believe, was at 28%. Uh, and, you know, so... Uh, you, you got to figure it gives a little bit of an advantage to Henry. And then at the same time, uh, you know, Warren's done a good job of uh, pulling the, uh, you know, other candidates to his banner. Uh, and they had a press conference up in uh, Greenville this morning with uh, some of the fourth congressional district candidates and other people endorsing him. 
And then, again, Henry was on the road all last week with four or five different cities that he hit where we had endorsements from a good number of uh, other elected officials. So, you know, both of them are really hitting the endorsement train right now, I'll put it that way, uh, and we'll be barnstorming all over the state for the next week and a half. Uh, you know, so if you haven't been able to meet or greet one of these candidates for governor in the last year, I expect that if you have any inclination to whatsoever, you should almost be tripping over them for the next 10 days. <laughs> I'm sure. Goes, I'm sure. Before he goes, and we got to change. I got a quick question. Since South Carolina is obviously in the national news, um, give yeah. me a big upset you see coming in the fall in South Carolina. There's obviously well, several races it, which are getting national attention. You know, uh, I don't see any upsets for Republican incumbents. You know, in the uh, uh, you know in the fall this year, at least here in South Carolina, anyway. I mean. Uh, you know, I think I would guess, my guess would be we probably just saw the biggest upset we're going to see this year, uh, this past Tuesday night down in Charleston. Um, you know, that was a uh, a political earthquake, I guess would be one way I would put it down there, you know, with uh, Katie Arrington. And she's an incredibly strong candidate, incredibly, you know, uh, energetic candidate, put together a very well-run campaign. I'd say I think it's probably fair to say the most energetic and strongest and best organized opponent Mark has had. Uh, and, uh, you know, you add into that the extra issue of Donald Trump being an issue in the race. And I think that did it. Yeah, because Katie and Mark Stanford are both uh, friends of mine. And when I looked at the two of them going, oh, he had a problem with her coming in. And she is a very strong, very dynamic candidate. But my question is, Drew, do you think we can ever float a candidate to take away Clyburn's seat in that area of Charleston? I've seen some people go up against him. One of them I thought would be pretty yeah. strong, Leon Wynn, but we never yeah. seem to be able to put someone to go and challenge him. Uh, well, you know, uh, it I means the, the districts and the district lines are what they are, and it's just a really, really hard district to challenge. And the harder a district is to challenge, uh, tends to mean you have a harder time attracting, uh, you know, the type of candidates that you need to win certain races, uh, you know, because they make rational decisions based on opportunity and, you know, to win the odds to win, uh, or at least most of them do. Uh, and so that makes it more difficult. And, you know, so it's it's a numbers deal. I mean, at the end of the day, elections are about 50% plus one. And if you can't get there, you got a problem, man. Out of all the congressional districts in the in the state, obviously that's by far the most difficult one. Well, I got to congratulate you on the two uh, referendums that were on the ballot. One of them, um, <laughs> we, I had been working on this along with some other members across the state on getting uh, the start, the very start to get our primaries closed, and you got the foot in the door. God bless you for that. Now the state of South yep. Carolina is going to have party affiliation on the voter registration, which would make it harder for someone to cross over and vote in well, someone else's primary. Well, and that, you know, technically that was, that was an advisory referendum. But what it does do is it does give us an opportunity as a party to lobby the legislature more effectively now because now I can take the results of that referendum and I can go and slice and dice it by state house and senate district and I can go to members of the legislature and say, you know, 80x percent of people in your district want the option to be able to register by party, et cetera, et cetera. I can do that with those guys all across the state. Now, this past year, I had 55 or 54 members of the state house co-sponsor a bill to do exactly that. 
and I have all ideas that uh, with some changes in the Judiciary Committee structure come January, we'll be able to get that bill passed and out of the House, and then it'll be, you know, a, a different lobbying job in the state Senate. Well, one other question before I let you go, because I did extend extend the show just a few minutes to give you time. Um, One of the things I'd like to see is a change to our Supreme Court. Do you think you'd be able to help affect a change to get uh, a court that would be more conservative than it is at this point? Because right now it's 50-50. And I don't know if you know about the challenge that the Episcopal Church is having here in South Carolina against the South Carolina Episcopal Church. And it's 28 churches that just may lose their property because the Supreme Court is split in a decision that is unenforceable. It is crazy. Now, if you're talking about the state Supreme Court? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, well, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, uh, our our Constitution here in this state is what it is right now, and that is a legislative matter, quite frankly. Uh, The legislature elects Supreme Court judges. They elect everything down to family court and every magistrates and so on and so forth. Uh, And that means we have to be able to get our ducks in a row when it comes to actually finding good candidates to run for judgeships, including Supreme Court, and then rounding up and lobbying the number of legislators that we would need in order to make a difference on the court. Uh, You know, so just as as a rule, though, for me, Uh, as party chairman, and one of the things, I mean, part of my job is making the party relevant, and that means being relevant to grassroots activists, being relevant to donors, and being relevant to elected officials, and so the more relevant that the elected officials see the party as being, then the more likely they are to listen to the party whenever we tell them, you know, we have an issue with this judge election, or we have an issue with this bill that affects election law, or partisan registration, and other things like that, so you know, I've been going out of my way to do certain things and put certain assets in place that will make us more relevant to those elected officials. So eventually we can have more of an impact on those issues, and then that then, you know, makes the party matter more to the average grassroots person that's out there because they see us as having an impact. Well, I have seen a revitalization in the state party that I haven't seen in a number of years. And, Drew, you are doing a fantastic job, you and Holly up there. God bless you for the hard work. And you're going to stop back on Monday and let us know how everything's going. I will. If you get in touch with Hope, I will be back on the program. We'll get it on the schedule, and I'll actually be earlier on time next time. Annie, we we, we need him for an hour, Annie. We We need this guy for an hour. We're not we're not letting Thanks you off the hook. Me. Just so simple. <laughs> I'll have to make sure I've had enough coffee then before we do that. <laughs> <laughs> or what is this calf pal? <laughs> Get some calf pal. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, Drew. Thank you so much, and we'll be speaking with you next week. Thank you, ma'am. Y'all have a good one. You too. Oh, uh, you know, Andy. Right. Whenever Drew, you have your whenever you have your leaders, they're always so. They're just so such damn good American Republicans, you know. They just are. Remember the one guy who was your local who I love too. Gosh. Oh, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was because I've had so many on. I mean, can you believe? Come this August, we'll be entering our ninth year. Holy cow! Oh. Like it's been a one heck of a ride. One heck yeah, of a ride. Certain. But uh, nine we, years, well. Had, but as always, a great yeah. show, Annie. Even today, no doubt. <laughs> Well, uh, we're going to be back. We're going to have Mike Hill 
uh, who's going to be joining us. Uh, he's commissioner down in Florida, a friend of uh, Curtis's that's been looking for running for higher office. Burgess Owens will be returning. And also another friend of Curtis's, Larry Harvey, who's another politician out of Florida, will be joining us. Um, this you'll be interested in. Uh, there is Risa Kirkland will be joining us next week on Friday. She's working on getting a film made about the Korean War. Uh, it's centered around a soldier, and they wanted to make a movie about the Korean War in the closing days of the Korean War. So Hal Willis was the producer, went out to Korea, went to an actual combat unit, and used those, those men from that combat unit to make this film. And at the end of the film... Uh, they wanted this one soldier, because he just stood out on screen, to sign up with Hollywood. And the guy said the first time, no, I want to go back to my troops in the field. They pursued him a second time. He says, no, I want to go back to my troops in the field. So what Hal Willis did was he killed him off in the film. At the end of the film, his buddies are all in the hotel, sitting at the dining room table, smoking cigars and having scotch and whatever, having a good old time, looking to go back home stateside. He picked up his gear. He went back to the field, and hours later, he died the second time in real life. She's going to be talking about that movie. She's going to be talking about that soldier. It's going to be a a really emotional uh, show on Friday. Uh, So we've got a lot going on. And next month, we've got Trevor Loudon coming on and Valerie Greenfield. We've got some really outstanding people coming up on the upcoming shows. So I want to thank, uh, Mike, you for joining us. It is been so much fun miss you a lot at times you and kel all those years we had you and kel together <laughs> those they were awesome so it's it's my pleasure annie you know it's uh but the campaigns and duty calls and it's but wow I, I i miss doing it when i'm doing it but i mean you know oh gotta gotta sometimes you gotta kick these knuckleheads in, uh, in this area and the booty um before we shut off since we're on overtime um one other one other question what um What's your take on the uh, the report that was revealed? Basically, as the media, of course, tries to spin it, but uh, obviously, clearly, we have leaders of the FBI, we have Hillary Clinton, we have several people in her staff. Um, <laughs> their hands aren't just in the cookie jar; they got caught with the cookies in their hand eating. Um, and it's not partisan. Not. It's like what is is they they parse this so I I can't even understand how the heck they were able to do what they did with that IG report and already Nunes and others within the Congress and Senate are asking for the original unredacted report they want to compare it because I watched uh, Director Ray on TV when he came out with this announcement and I I needed a few. Bank, honestly, it was just so blatantly partisan, and it, any any credibility the director and any of the leaders of the FBI have have gone completely and forever out the window. We need an entire new shakeup of the entire DOJ, and I think Donald J. Trump has finally realized it. Sessions has to go, Mueller has to go, Rosenstein has to go, and oh by the way, an after note afterthought. Uh, this came down just before going on air. Paul Manafort has been sent directly to jail. Uh, he went to really? court to appear in court on new charges of witness, oh, witness tampering filed by Mueller. Mueller filed new charges of witness tampering. He convinced the judge to revoke the $10 million bail, and Manafort, as of this afternoon, is sitting behind bars awaiting trial. 
Talk about destroying a man's entire life, his family, and the future, his future. Uh, if this guy doesn't suffer a heart attack, I don't know what will make him do that. I, my prayers and thoughts yeah. are with the Manafort family. If he's done something wrong, that's you know? fine. But what they are putting this man through is, is unforgivable, and it's all from the fruit of the poisonous tree. Illegal Pfizer warrants. Everything should have been thrown out the window to begin with. It should never have yeah. gotten this far. And, and, but that's and our show, folks. I, I hope, based on what you said, Trump will step in by the weekend and just stop this. It's just, you know, he's, he's, he's dragging his ass on this. He, need, he needs to just lay it out. And, Andy, not just get rid of the leadership. He needs to, Monday morning, there needs to be an empty building. They, they need to buff the floors. <laughs> I mean, he just needs to can everybody. Well, there are a lot of honest, hardworking ground floor agents out there doing a fantastic job. It's the leadership, you know, the superiors that are all political hacks. And the political hacks have to go. It's got to go back to a nonpartisan organization. Period. End of report. Yep. That's it. Thank you, Annie. But that's all we got, Mike. That's <laughs> well, all we got. You, We're Mike, 10 minutes over. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Annie. <laughs> oh, a little extra freebie for the listeners. Uh, so here we are at the end of the show uh, with Southern Sense. I'm not even going to go with the closing number because we have gone so far overboard. want to thank everyone for joining us up in the chat room, up on Facebook, up on YouTube that called into the show. Thanks for Burgess Owens for the surprise call. We really appreciate it. He will be back with us on Monday. So until then, I say good night and God bless. Have a good weekend, everyone.